This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Quick announcement. The Big Change Program opens up this week, tomorrow, December 1st. 2016. It opens up. It'll be open for about three weeks because then we start full bore in January and I want everybody on board ready to go. So uh, no last minute signups there. So if you're interested, check it out at bigchangeprogram.com. You'll notice that we've added some flexibility. There's different options and there's different payment plans. And at the end of this interview, I'll come back and explain them a little bit to you. Now to today's interview. It's not about plants. Isn't that refreshing? I'm talking with Robin Chuter, who is Australian, so we call her Robin Chuta, and she is a naturopath, and she has made a journey from kind of straight-on naturopathy to a much more evidence-based approach. Uh, I met her through affiliation with Wellness Forum Health, which is an extremely evidence-based organization. And so what fascinated me about Robin's work is that she's into something called EFT, or Emotional Freedom Technique, or you might know it as tapping. Now, this is basically a kind of self-therapy where you think thoughts in a certain way and you tap parts of your body in a particular order, and it's supposed to really help to release old stuck patterns, negative thoughts, and help with behaviors, phobias, depression, anxiety, guilt, all that stuff that we try to deal with in this culture through medication and in more enlightened cultures through through talking and ritual and play and various forms of psychotherapy and psychodrama. And Robin's like, no, this tapping really works. And I'm kind of a skeptic about lots of things like this. So I wanted to have a conversation with her about it because I know she's a scientist and I know she values evidence. And I told her I didn't want this to be kind of a softball interview. Like, I really want to be convinced, so I'm going to kind of come at it hard and see what she's got. And so that's the um, conversation that Robin and I had about emotional freedom technique. So without further ado, Robin Tudor, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. It's a real pleasure. In fact, it's such an honor to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. So uh, I've, 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 I've crossed the ocean, or at least at least one ocean. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You were on my iPod when I was um, uh, when I when I flew to the US last month, actually, to attend a couple of plant-based nutrition conferences. So I listened to you in Australia, and I listened to you on airplanes. How's that? <laughs> no, no, no wonder I have this uncontrollable jet lag half the time. <laughs> That must be me. Now I know. So, um, so we met through uh, Wellness Forum Health, and I wanted to talk to you because you have a lot to offer. You uh, have taught me a lot of things, and you have some interests that I'm very interested in. So why don't you just start by saying like, who you are, what you do, who you work with, kind of the basics. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm now in my 21st year of, of practice. My initial training was uh, as a naturopath, and I guess... So I, I really sympathize with, with Pam Popper, the founder of Wellness Forum Health, when, when she talks about being a recovering naturopath, because I spent four years learning some, some 
really valuable science stuff, you know, the biochemistry, the anatomy, the physiology, the pharmacology, this is all really, really important. But the majority of my, my four years of formal training was in things like bark flower remedies and, and homeopathy and herbal medicine and amino acid therapy and all sorts of, of, of weird and wonderful things, which I really don't use uh-huh. because from very very early on and this is just one of those one of those circumstances i think just a, a lucky break my very first nutrition lecturer at naturopathic college uh, was a member of the well i suppose you'd say a member of the natural hygiene movement and so he taught nutrition as diet how about that <laughs> as opposed to supplements and that really set the tone for me that's I, I became very interested in becoming essentially a lifestyle practitioner as opposed to a you know a pills and potions dispenser pam likes to call it a holistic pharmacist uh-huh so what what can you explain what the natural hygiene movement is because it's, it's such an archaic term <laughs> It is. It is. It sounds like, you know, make sure you wash behind your ears and brush your teeth, that kind of thing. But natural hygiene, I believe, began in the middle of the 19th century. And hygiene comes from the Greek goddess Hygieia. And the idea is is basically that self-care is health care. So natural hygiene principles were that the body is self-healing, that really we just need to get out of its way and let it let it do its own work so you know eat a very simple plant-based diet and get regular exercise get enough sunshine take care of our mental health make sure we get enough sleep essentially just look after ourselves rather than go to um some kind of medical practitioner to get a pill to fix the ill Mm -hmm. okay so so that was your that was your exposure to nutrition because when you said, you know, I was exposed yeah. to nutrition as diet, I was thinking, like, what else? What else is there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, well, that that's not how particularly the practice of clinical nutrition is framed, at least here in Australia. I'm not sure what the situation is in the U.S., but here in Australia, if you if you study a nutrition qualification, what you're going to learn about is is all the individual components of nutrition so the vitamins and the minerals and and amino acids and so forth and in terms of of therapy uh, nutrition therapy usually consists of prescribing supplements of of, of all of those micronutrients as opposed to you know changing what people eat Mm -hmm. so when when you got out of uh, of naturopathy college did you start practicing like a naturopath Initially, I did prescribe some herbal medicines. I sort of dabbled in that, but it wasn't something that really held my interest. What I really wanted to do was to help people change what they eat and how they live. And so I was about two years into naturopathic practice. I should preface this by saying when I graduated from naturopathic college and started my own practice, I I was 20 and I kind of cringe now to think how naive and inexperienced I was and 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 probably frankly how ineffective I was initially because I thought that having acquired all this wonderful knowledge all I would have to do is just tell people that they were sick because of what they're eating (laughs) and and then they would say wow I never knew that and they would change boom just like that and you probably won't be surprised to hear that it didn't work that way and so two years into practice I decided to um to go back to to school 
school and I got a graduate diploma of counselling. And the purpose behind that was for was for me to gain a greater understanding of the mechanics of change. You know, why is it that people find it so difficult to change and how, how could I help them make it easier to undertake in many cases, pretty substantial lifestyle changes. I'm not just talking diet either, but for a lot of people, many of those lifestyle changes that they need to make in order to be healthier involve uh, involve challenging a lot of very deeply held beliefs and in particular learning how to prioritise their own health as opposed to pleasing other people all the time, which is one of the main reasons why people don't enjoy necessarily a great standard of health. Hmm. I was just coaching someone this morning on that very issue. Um, some, uh-huh. Someone who, you know, a mother, a wife, um, a, a co-owner in a business who spent two decades taking care of other people and yes. and was talking about how, how challenging it was to, to even feel like she deserved to take care of herself. Yes, yes, this is this is an issue that I frequently encounter. I would say particularly among women. Mm. Not that there aren't men who who experience this as well, but but women are really socially conditioned to to view themselves as having value only in relation to the ways in which they serve other people. And so what often happens is that, that their their needs for exercise, their their needs for, uh, for for self-care in various ways, their needs for sleep, and certainly their needs in terms of putting time aside to prepare healthy food, they just get bumped right off the list. Right. And there's but, always somebody else to be taken care of. So h- how do you talk to those people? Because mm. it's, easy, it's easy to to kind of make an intellectual argument, but how far does that go? Yes, exactly. And I must say my, my training in counseling, again, this was a case where as with naturopathy school, there, there were many, many useful things that I learned, but fundamentally there was, there was a point at which, um, all of those logical arguments. I mean, yes, people will accept them. Yes, they would say, oh, I know, I know, I know. I really need to put myself first. But then they would just run into, I suppose, the the, the, the massive internal block. It's that um, network of beliefs which really underlies and underpins their, their, their sense of personal worth. And that's where the EFT part of this came in. So many years after I'd, I'd done my graduate diploma of counselling, which was very much focused on the sort of classic, you know, Rogerian, that is Carl Rogers' skills of, of, of um, just empathic listening and, and, and reflection and all those sorts of things, which are all very wonderful. Um, but I, I stumbled across EFT when my second child was born, my daughter, and unlike my firstborn, who was who was quite an easy child, you know, you could and could you could you down on on, on the floor. With, yeah, let's let back up and say, wait, what is EFT? You've you've used that phrase twice, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So so EFT uh, stands for emotional freedom techniques, and it's um, I suppose my shorthand for it would be emotional acupuncture without needles. So you're stimulating acupuncture points on on the face and body and hands just by a gentle fingertip pressure or t- tapping. So the popular name for EFT is is just tapping because that that describes the physical process of it. Okay, great. So please go on. 
Yeah, so I stumbled across EFT while I was um, seeking help for, well, <laughs> to basically cope with, with, with my second child who was a, uh, I called her the Velcro child, you know, for the first probably six to eight months of her life, I, I literally could not put her down or she'd scream the house down. She had to come everywhere with me, even to the bathroom. And I was pretty much at the end of my rope, just, just trying to figure out how I could possibly continue ha having a life with this incredibly needy child. And this, this was in the very early days of the internet, way before Facebook and there was just this um, uh, support group, like a listserv uh, for attachment parenting. And this woman who pretty regularly made posts that I, I found intelligent and helpful mentioned EFT one day. And I thought, well, you know, you seem like a sensible person. This is probably worth looking up. So I found the very primitive website at that time of Gary Craig, the founder of EFT. And I must say, when I sat down and started watching the videos of it, I thought this is rubbish. This is just complete rubbish. Um people people don't recover from, you know, long-held phobias or other deep issues in this period of time that I was I was seeing demonstrated. The first video that I saw was this classic um, case uh, um, uh, example of a guy who'd had a lifelong fear of water after friends, I'm using that term in inverted commas, friends um, held him underwater and he nearly drowned when he was a teenager. And so the poor guy couldn't even look at a swimming pool without having a heart attack. And so in about 20 minutes, um, Gary had him up to his neck in a swimming pool feeling perfectly comfortable. And I thought, that just doesn't happen. You know, I, I, I know how you deal with phobias. It takes months. You know, you do this sort of um, this conditioning technique. So I didn't really believe it. But I had nothing to lose. Um, I'd had a, a long-term fear of cockroaches. <laughs> Which is such a crazy thing because we, we have some of the deadliest creepy crawlies in the world here in Australia. Yeah. We have snakes and spiders and just really, really scary things. And I have no fear of them whatsoever. But I had a phobia of cockroaches. And so I decided to do EFT on myself on my phobia of cockroaches. And it was amazing. Uh, I went from having to get up on a, on a chair and get someone else to dispose of the cockroach if one came into the room to, I mean, I don't love them. I still think they're they're pretty hideous, but um, but they don't freak me out. I mean, at all. And and that was after you know one one uh, session of EFT. So I thought, wow, if it can do that, what else could it do? So I started using it on other personal issues that I was having, and then very very cautiously, very reluctantly, I began using it with my clients. And I say that because it just looks like such a freaky thing when you actually see people doing it. It it looks really weird, and so I, I, I started using it with some of my more open-minded clients and the results that they got were just so phenomenal. I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm not holding back now. I'm just going to introduce this to, to everyone who, who might be open to it. Uh -huh. And that that was the beginning of my fascination with EFT. Wow. So, because when you mentioned EFT, when we started talking about doing an interview together, I had kind of exactly the same reaction like i'm i'm a little scared cuz you know i'm like the evidence based guy right yeah. so i you know i write books with scientists and we have 800 mm -hmm. references and uh, you know the eft sounded like the sort of thing that you'd find, you know, along with the crystals and the homeopathy, and I'm, and I have nothing against that. I know, that. I know, <laughs> and I'm the same. I, I am, I am the nerd girl. You know, I'm, I'm the person who, who says, "Well, show me the evidence for anything," and. Um, 
and, and initially, I mean, EFT is a fairly young therapy. Initially, when I started uh, using it, that's what disturbed me, that there really wasn't much of an evidence base. There are a lot of anecdotes. There are a lot of case reports. And some of them were really, really very staggering. I mean, spontaneous remission of, of, of cancer, that sort of thing. And, and then over the last probably five years or so, there, there's actually been quite an explosion of research into EFT. And so there, there's now a much better understanding of the mechanisms by which it works. Uh, that's and, a, yeah, let me let me let me raise some of my objections. So maybe maybe you can put the you know when you talk about the mechanisms uh, mm, and the scientific mm-hmm. evidence, we can put it in some sort of context. So yes. I, I first heard about it from uh, Nick Ortner, who I think wrote a book, yes. The Tapping Solution, and made a made a movie. So many years ago, I was in a, in a business mastermind group with him. So he was telling me about this, and he sent me the video, and I'm thinking. This is just the most random shit in the world. Like, like, almost like, like you're doing some <laughs> I sort of. Totally sympathize. I really, really do. Like, it felt like you know, sort of the, the person who just sort of like spastically slaps themselves with, they have no like hit, touch here, poke here in my nose, up my butt. It's, it's like this. This <laughs> yeah, can't. I, I always, I always say to people before I start teaching them, I say, look, you know, this is this is going to feel really weird. You're going to feel stupid doing this. Don't worry, I'll be doing it too, so we can look stupid together. <laughs> And and the second thing is when I when I hear things like you know radical you know spontaneous remissions of cancer, I think about kind of these very very charismatic figures who can kind yes. of induce a mass hypnosis. Like I went to a, a a marketing conference once, and this guy who was like this you know both a stage hypnotist and kind of a, a huckster, he was like getting people all around me to like you know fall into sudden sleep. And I was certain mm-hmm. that, that the whole thing was just, you know, the power of suggestion. And, mm-hmm. and that so if someone's mm-hmm. getting these amazing results from, from such a sort of random, like, poking in the face and the, the base of the throat and the top of the head and all that, that they can get mm-hmm. those results because of some sort of, you know, hypnosis skill that they've developed. But it's, it's not inherent in, in the technique itself. So that's that's kind of my yes, my yes, come yes. from. And 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 so the interesting thing for me is that EFT was actually developed as a self-help technique. So many of these many of these case reports, many of these anecdotes are actually just people using it on themselves. If it depended on a charismatic person, and, and, and I'll grant you, I mean, there have been many of these figures throughout history. If it depended on a charismatic person, then then how would just people sitting in their, in their living room, having downloaded the free EFT manual and just kind of following it like a cookbook, how would they get, then get the results for themselves when there is no charismatic person actually doing it to them? Mm. Well, I would say, you know, placebo effect, power of belief, and like, you know, like, like most useful therapies... <laughs> You really can't do uh, randomized, blind-controlled trials, right? You sure. Yeah, people tend to know whether whether they're actually doing something or not. And so this this is where I I find. Um, uh, Dawson Church's study on cortisol levels. I mean, if you're looking for for one mechanism of action, the and so let me just back up a, a sec here. So, essentially, that this is the way that I explain EFT to to my clients when I'm teaching it to them, and that is that EFT induces a relaxation response, and 
that that then so if you are able to spontaneously put yourself into a relaxation response effectively to turn off the stress response and turn on the relaxation response and then while in that relaxation response you really deliberately focus intently focus on the source of distress so whether this is a a repetitive thought that you're having uh, a disturbing emotion uh, a physical sensation so a pain or discomfort in the body whether it's a disturbing memory whatever it might be there's all sorts of stimuli that we can use as the focal point for EFT so when you put yourself into a a relax uh, into the relaxation response and then you consider that that stressful stimulus your it, it, it's it's quite an anomalous experience for your brain because your brain is used to only processing that stimulus in a stress state. Now, when when you're in a relaxed state and you're considering that stimulus, it's kind of like your brain goes, "Huh." what's going on? I mean, I'm not usually feeling all relaxed and comfortable when I think about this. And it opens up um, channels for considering that the stimulus in very different ways. And so, you know, the holy grail of cognitive behavior therapy is the cognitive shift, that moment when a person goes, oh, I see this differently. And with EFT, we we achieve that, uh, but through a totally different means. So rather than challenging a person's beliefs or cognitions, with EFT, we, we release the, um, the, the emotions that, that were holding that original perception in place. And then they're free to to experience that cognitive shift and, and, and to, to be able to see the problem in different ways. Mm. So, so I do a, um, a, a Russian form of martial art called Sistema. Mm-hmm. And yes. w- one of the things that we focus on all the time is you know, our, our neurological state. And so the goal is kind of to continually stress it, to bring up more and more fear responses while doing breathing that tells us our bodies to relax. So that, you know, so ultimately, like if I'm in a fight or in a dangerous situation, well, the natural thing to do is to like, you know, go fight or flight and, and release all the cortisol and yes. all the other things. But I'm training yes. myself that, and I'm, and I'm finding myself doing, doing it automatically, like I, I'll trip up the steps and, and immediately I'll go into a kind of burst, burst breathing pattern and try to relax my shoulders. So is this sort of the same thing where I'm just sort of re- yes, retraining a so neural pathway? Describe, yeah, you could describe this as counter-conditioning. In other words, conditioning is where a certain response becomes strongly associated with the stimulus. And when you counter-condition, you, you essentially nullify that response. So, so yeah, that, that's how I see EFT is working. It's essentially counter-conditioning. So you're pairing... You're, you're breaking the, the bond between, say, a distressing thought, belief, emotion, physical sensation, whatever, and the stress response that would normally occur with that. Mm. And instead, you're, you're yeah, allowing. Uh, so, so you're talking about, I suppose, um, a set of practices that, that people can do to counter-condition. EFT allows that counter-conditioning to happen in, in, a, in a more spontaneous way. And you know, how do we know that it works to induce the, the relaxation response? Well, we can measure that through cortisol. And so a guy called Dawson Church, who has really spearheaded the, the research on EFT, conducted a study in which 
uh, there, there were there were three groups. Um, one of them was was just assigned rest in in a quiet room for an hour. Another were, were another group was assigned to talk therapy for an hour, and then the third group was assigned to EFT. And only the EFT group experienced a really significant reduction in cortisol levels. Uh, if, if memory serves me correctly, I think it was a twenty five percent reduction after an hour of EFT. So that's pretty impressive. So so we know that it does induce the relaxation response. And really, that's the most immediate effect. I mean, after one round of tapping, most people experience a really sort of you know, psychophysiological, profound sense of, of relaxation. And they'll say things like, oh, it's just like the problem isn't so big anymore. <laughs> And that's, you know, after about 30 seconds of working on it, even if they were in tears when, when we first began. Okay, so, so I'm going to come back at you with some more uh, skepticism, if that's all right. Mm. Go so, for it, yeah. So the tapping, for people who don't know, it's like you're, you're, you're repeating either a, a phrase out loud or a thought in your head, something that's distressing, while you literally tap with your fingers on different parts of your upper body, your head, your face, your... <clears throat> excuse yes. me, your neck and chest. Yes, and the uh, hands as well. <clears throat> and the hands. So why, do, why, do we, why don't we think it's just a combination of just sort of relaxing and, and having these thoughts at the same time, and the tapping is just sort of a, um, a ritual or like, you know, a shamanistic show as opposed to the tapping itself on these particular parts ha- doing something. Mm. Um, I just want to make sure I understand your your question. Uh, so what what you're saying is that people might get the same response if they just said those things out loud, or, or let's say tapped anywhere, or or tapped ah, on their desk. Okay, okay. So, so so the question is, do the points themselves have any particular relevance? There have been some some studies conducted on on sham tapping, so tapping on other parts of the body and. I mean, what? Well, I suppose one thing that you need to remember is that if you have a look at an acupuncture map of the human body, there are, there are actually acupuncture points all over the body anyway. But um, my understanding of the research is that the sham tapping has not been as as effective. So the the points that are used in EFT, they're obviously not the only acupuncture points. I mean, there's there's only about a dozen that we use. And there are hundreds of acupuncture points. But there does seem to be something intrinsically relaxing about those specific points. Uh-huh. So, so the, the intrinsic value then is it seems to be its effect on the nervous system, on being able to, to turn off fight or flight, that these are just good points and a good um, sequence. Yes, exactly. And, and I guess... Um, uh, you're, you, you've had Doug Lyle on the show. Um, yes. And, and I, I absolutely love Doug Lyle. I don't know whether you've seen the webinars that he's been doing with, with, uh, with John McDougall's program lately. I, I just but saw the one on, on anxiety. Yeah. Okay. So you know his technique. Uh, the way the way that he explains a panic attack is is with this reference to evolutionary uh, psychology. So, you know, panic attack is like you're out in the savanna. Uh, you see a lion. You realize the lion's seeing you. Uh, your first response is to freeze and uh, and then to break that freeze, which is essentially what people are in a panic attack. You run like heck. And and he said, you know, so he gets people to to run on the, on the spot very vigorously for about twenty seconds and then they stop and of course you know if you've stopped then it's kind of like your brain says hmm, 
I guess the lion isn't chasing me anymore then. <laughs> so I, 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 I understand EFT working in the same way where, okay, so if you've had this particular belief or thought or there's this person in your life who really just scares the daylights out of you, and every time you think of them, you you freak out. And then you induce this relaxation response and you think of them again and or you think of the situation again and it doesn't freak you out. It's, it's again, it's like the brain saying, oh, I suppose they're not really a danger then. I mean, here I am. I'm thinking about that person or that situation. I'm not about to pee my pants. So it can't really be all that bad. So that's that's how I I conceptualize EFT as, as working. It's so fascinating that you know that we think of ourselves as rational beings. Like we look at we, we look out there into the world and we make an assessment of is are things safe or not, and then our bodies respond. But it, it works the other way, doesn't it? It absolutely the, the, does work the other way. We listen to our bodies, and our bodies tell us things aren't safe or they are, with absolutely no reference to what's actually going on. Yes, I would take that further. I would say a lot of that that um, that split second judgment, which happens at a, at a totally unconscious level, a lot of that split second judgment about what is safe and what is not, uh, has reference to our past experience. And so we'll there'll be something about a particular person, even if we've just met them, that on an unconscious level, you know, unconscious mind is saying that person reminds me of somebody else. You you know, my scary uh, grade three teacher or my dad who used to get drunk and hit mum in front of me or that, um, you know, um, my, my older brother who was mean to me. And and then so, so we have these fear responses to people in situations which are just thoroughly out of our, our conscious reach. It's just very much that gut level processing of this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And then on a conscious level, we're thinking, why am I freaking out about this situation? Why, why don't I feel comfortable around this person? And the rational brain really, really can't get to that. It just can't answer those questions. Mm. And, and so in those cases, things like CBT would have limited value because they're, they're not addressing the, the, the root? This has been my my experience, and obviously there are some in, incredibly skilled and gifted practitioners of, of of CBT. And I mean, you know, I've read Aaron Beck's works, and uh, you know Albert Ellis, and and clearly these men were, or I think in Aaron Beck's case, is still alive. Yeah, they are geniuses, but. I've, I've found that there are limitations to the application of, of, of CBT and I, I, I suspect also that it simply works better in some people than others. Mm. And I'm hoping at, at, at some point in my future research career that I'll be able to, to do some research to maybe pin down uh, to, to gain some deeper understanding about who CBT works best for. I, I have a, a suspicion that... Um, uh, EFT works better for for people who, I suppose, in in Myers Briggs terms, would be described as as um, INFPs or, or highly sensitive people, and they they comprise a ridiculously large percentage of my client base, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, many of them have actually. Gone to psychologists in the past and and done CBT and it's it, it's it's fallen kind of flat. Now maybe they just didn't see very good practitioners. I don't know. But one thing I can say for sure is that EFT really works for them in a way that CBT does not. 
Uh-huh. And just for folks who aren't familiar with, with the Myers-Briggs INFP, mm. can you quickly? Yes. So, so the Myers-Briggs, um, Myers-Briggs, Myers-Briggs personality typing was derived from the, the theories of Carl Jung. And so uh, Jung described personality uh, as, as a, I suppose, um, as a, as a function of four different dimensions. So there's there's I and E, which is introvert and extrovert. That is whether whether you essentially whether you gain energy from your interaction with the outside world, that would be an extrovert, or whether you gain energy from from reference to your own internal world, which is which is an introvert. Uh, then then there's the, the the NS dimension is whether you primarily use intuition or whether you use the external senses to gather information about the world. The FT dimension is is whether you relate to the world primarily through feelings or through thoughts and then the final dimension is p and j which is perception and and, and judgment mm-hmm. and so an infp is an intuitive um uh, sorry an introverted intuitive feeling perceptive uh, uh, or Perception is, is perception and judgment is probably the the, the the most worst if that's a correct phrase uh, the the least well understood out of the Myers Briggs um, dimensions but it relates to spontaneity versus planning so an INFP is is more toward the spontaneous end of the spectrum and there's a psychologist by the name of Elaine Aron and she's uh, she's written several books on the highly sensitive temperament which correlates pretty well with with the INFP. Um, from from Myers Briggs. So so highly sensitive people uh, experience the same emotions as everybody else, but they experience them at a much more, I suppose, immediate and and profound level. They're those people who really wear their hearts on their sleeves. Um, you know, cry in the movies, even cry at ads involving fluffy chickens and puppies and that sort of thing. Um, people who experience almost like bodily reactions of ecstasy when they see a sunrise or, or hear a piece of beautiful music, and they're also people who can experience. Uh, a, um, physical illness as uh, as a result of, of, of their undealt with emotions. I suppose that might be possible for anyone, but I I do think that INFPs have a, a greater tendency to somatize their physical uh, their, sorry their psychological distress into physical illnesses. Mm. So uh, both the, the the problem is also the way into the cure. Yes, exactly. So if you've got yes. people who are so somatizing their emotions, they're 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 wearing their their uh, their emotional pains in their muscles, in their tissues, and then they're trying to get at it through intellectual means, through through the extroverted act of talking to someone. <laughs> and yes, precisely. It sounds horrible. <laughs> it doesn't work so well for them, and and often ends. Uh, it often results in 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 them feeling, I suppose, judged in the sense that you know here's this person saying terribly logical things to them, which which of course makes sense, and and doesn't and, and don't change a thing <laughs> for mm-hmm. that individual. And and since highly sensitive people have generally been told all their lives that there's something wrong with them, you're too sensitive. Like that's some terrible thing, you know. Like we couldn't do with a bit more sense sensitivity in this world (laughs) they've been told all their lives there's something wrong with them and unfortunately I suppose in, in less skilled hands, CBT can tend to reinforce that because they they now feel judged for, 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 for being such emotional people as opposed to being really rational. Mm. 
So, so let me, let me ask you something. A little bit of, uh, of of clinical consulting for for stuff that I'm doing. So, sure. um, so I'm running a program, and I, you know, I run it uh, a few times a year with Josh Lajani called the Big Change Program. And that's really exciting. Yeah. And we're t- we're taking people largely at the moment people who have bought in intellectually to the lifestyle, the you know plant based, yes. whole food, exercise. Um, you know, like, and, and they feel terrible about themselves often because they've known about it for years. They've watched Forks Over Knives 17 times and they're still not doing it. <laughs> yeah, they've read all the books. They've been to, yeah. the, to the conferences. Yeah, I know the story. So, so after the initial, um, you know, sort of lectures and conversations, I'm, uh, I'm working with them on a methodology that was developed by a friend of mine, Glenn Livingston, um, called Never Binge Again. And mm. and that was based on the work, uh, partly of, of I think Jack Trimpey for Rational Recovery, um, which which it basically says that like we're going to imagine that there's a voice in your head called the pig, and it's the pig, which is a personification of this like survival instinct that just wants to eat right now, that doesn't want to exercise. What's, you know, it's, it's like the uh, the Doug Lyle. Um, Alan Goldhammer, you know, um, the trinity of of, uh, of behavior, the uh, yeah, the, the, the pleasure trap, maximize pleasure, minimize pain, and 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 reduce energy expenditure. Yep. Right. Yep. So that's all it wants to do, and so yep. you know, a lot of people are getting a lot of benefit. <clears throat> excuse me, from from thinking about it that way. From like you know, okay, now I have to fight with the pig, or I don't have to listen to the pig. The pig's in the cage. It's a tremendously useful way to think about it and it gives people control and a plan and and rules and insights into forces that they hadn't been able to control and, and had identified with as you know something wrong with them. Can you see a way to incorporate EFT into into that process? Yeah, I absolutely can. And as a matter of fact, um, I've a, a lot of my clients are either actively dealing with or, or, or I suppose are largely through the process of recovering from eating disorders of various descriptions. And EFT is an amazingly useful tool for working with eating disordered behavior. And what I would do in, in that case is actually um, teach the person how to do the tapping process on that desire to binge. And you can come at it from several angles. So uh, the, the, the one that, that really knocks people's socks off is you just start by, by doing the tapping process on the sensory elements of the craving. So say the person has a craving for, I don't know, let's take a random example, um, a piece of chocolate cake. And what, so what I do in my office is I'll just, I'll just, you know, look in, look on Google images and I'll, I'll find uh, an image of a particularly luscious, decadent piece of chocolate cake and get that up on screen and then just have the person look at it and, and tell me what they're noticing. So, you know, what do they see? What do they feel? What do they, what's going on in their mouth, in their body? And then we'll just launch into the tapping process on those sensory elements of the craving. And the fascinating thing is that usually by about two or three rounds of tapping, in, in time terms, this might be as little as five minutes. The person's looking at the picture and going, nah, that looks disgusting. Ugh. <laughs> and so they, they experience this really physical uh, shift in their uh, in, in their desire, as in their desire just drops through the floor. And then... 
Um, and, and then I'll get them to actually delve into the the emotions. So, you know, uh, what what do you feel when you think about eating this? And also, what do you think what what do you feel when you think about not eating this? And this is where feelings of deprivation and loss and uh, come up, which we can deal with. Very commonly, they will at that point have some kind of memory flash into their mind that relates to early experiences with with that food or foods like that and uh and 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 the emotional connection that that someone in their life has with that particular food so one of my most striking experiences of this was was with a woman who like your like your client population uh, she she'd signed up to the program you know she knew how she wanted to eat she'd read the books been to the lectures knew exactly what she wanted to do but she had this thing for chocolate and it would just bring her completely unstuck. And so this one time, you know, we're tapping on her her cravings for chocolate and this memory flashed into her mind of, of going to her grandmother's house. Now, her parents were quite emotionally distant and cool and reserved and, and she always felt not good enough and she had this older sister and, the, you know, the sun shone out of the the, rear, the the older sister's rear end, if you know what I mean, and she always felt like the <laughs> like the also-ran. But, uh-huh. but when she went to Granny's house, Granny was warm and loving and caring and always had a, a tin of quality street chocolates. I don't know if you have them in the US, but um, so they're, they're, they're all these sort of different centres. And so she realised in that instant that, that that chocolate for her was love. Chocolate was a symbol of the connection with her grandmother and her grandmother was the only reliable source of love for her in her early life. And and so the idea of not eating chocolate essentially equated to not being loved. No wonder she had trouble not eating chocolate. And then mm. we, once we tapped through that, she really was able to, to break that connection with, with chocolate. And uh, this was some years ago. I don't know if you remember the the, the volcano in Iceland that blew up yeah. some time ago. And yeah, she happened to be overseas at the time, and she was supposed to be uh, she was flying from one place to another to to meet her her children um, for for a family holiday. And so you know, with the volcano blowing up, the flights were delayed. She the communications were broken. She didn't know where she where her kids were, and and she emailed me and she said, normally I would have been eating chocolate like it was going out of style because I would because I was so stressed and I didn't even think about it because of that EFT session mm-hmm. so yeah she she really like the the rational mind got back in control of it but not by sitting there and explaining to her that she didn't need chocolate it was by handling handling the the the, the unmet, uh, unmet emotional needs of that kind of little person still trapped inside her Mm. Now, what what about so you you know they make this uh, somatic connection, um, but they still the tapping doesn't like solve their need for love, right? So, what do they have to do after that? It's not like this mm. this one time miracle cure, right? Yeah. Okay. So to set the context for this, I mean this this is a woman who was who was married and 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 had three kids and actually had plenty of love in her life, but the part of her that was um, tied to the chocolate, I suppose, still had this sense of I'm not loved. I can't get love, and. 
by working our way through that memory, there's there's a there's a fairly detailed process that we use in EFT. Um, there's a, actually there's an offshoot of EFT called matrix reimprinting, where you work through through memories and work specifically on what what beliefs the person formed as a result of that experience. And it's it's the resolution of those beliefs that really results in in the person feeling free to 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 choose a different course of action to essentially live their live their lives from that point forward from their adult rather than from that internalized stuck child uh-huh gotcha so so at that point they have they have it sounds like their free will has been returned that they can decide exactly how they're going to go about the, it you've heard the analogy of the mind being like you know the elephant and the rider right yep. so so the unconscious mind is this big lumbering elephant that that wants to go this way and that way and you've got this tiny little rider the rational conscious mind sitting on top of the elephant hanging on for dear life trying to steer the thing well EFT kind of speaks directly to the elephant and having calmed the elephant down and stopped the elephant you know rampaging through the village uh it's now a lot easier for the rider to to give the elephant a gentle nudge and send it in the right direction gotcha Gotcha. so um eft has uh, i'm not sure how much but at least in the united states there's there's sort of an, uh, an alliance between eft and kind of um like business potential writers and new age and mm-hmm. and sort of sort of very hypey marketing promises like this yes, this is this I is going to I've seen I've seen a lot of that it uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable yeah so i mean is it is it possible so you know th- there's a lot of modalities where people can get very very feel much better very very quickly but then somehow it feels like it doesn't stick like okay oh mm-hmm. my god i I'm no, i have no desire for this chocolate cake that's amazing and then 3 days later it's back. Does that mean it didn't work? Yeah, well, what I would say is that in, in that case, the core issue has not been reached. So if, if you just stop at doing the sensory tapping on the cravings or tapping on the sensory elements of the cravings, which is what I described before, then usually the craving will come back. When when you really dig down in, in, into that, that subterranean level of it, it, it the the emotional reasons why the person has a craving, you know, for that particular food, that's when you normally just get rid of it for good. And, and look, sometimes there are multiple memories and, and you might have to work your way through several of them, but it's not a particularly lengthy process uh, to, you know, to, to work through a memory. It can usually be wrapped up in, you know, 20 to 40 minutes. And and then, you know, once it's done, it's generally done. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's, do, there's, um, there's some really sorry. I'll just jump in here. There, there's some really interesting research that's been done specifically on the area of food cravings by Peter Stapleton um, here in Australia, and I've, I've been in touch with her. I'm, I'm hoping she'll be available to be my my PhD supervisor when I get through my honours program, and uh, she's what well, she's doing some really interesting research, uh, basically comparing EFT with CBT, just doing head uh, head to head comparisons. 
on food cravings, on anxiety and 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 depression, and finding that um, EFT essentially has equivalence to CBT, which is of course you know the gold standard in in, in psychological treatment. But again, I I would say I think we need to to choose the right tool for the person, and hopefully in the future there'll be somewhat more clarity around selecting people who are ideal candidates for for either treatment. Right, right. It it seems like we've reached the point in just, you know, biomedical science where we need to get smarter about not just saying, well, this one's better than that one because this one has a 57% efficacy rate and that one has a 39% Mm. efficacy rate, but really look into anything that works, you know, it works for somebody who... Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, there was a really interesting presentation at the Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference in, in LA last month that I attended uh, by Liana Leonoff, who, who was the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And so she, she was saying, you know, one of the reasons why lifestyle medicine doesn't get you know, the full results as in compliance with, with patients is that it's not sufficiently tailored to their individual needs. And we need to do a lot more thinking about not just what works, but what works for whom and why. Mm-hmm. And now I'll give you an example, you know, a bit being in, in Myers-Briggs terms, um, myself being a P, my approach to meal planning is is fairly random. As in, I open the fridge, I look at what vegetables there are and what probably needs to be used up. And then I go, well, I could put this with that and chuck it together with this other spice. And, and you know, I throw dinner together. I have absolutely no plan. And I don't work from a recipe. I mean, it's not that I never use recipes. I do. But when I'm when I'm cooking myself, I just chuck stuff together in a very random way. Right. Well, they, so say, that, they say that from, you know, Myers-Briggs is what you are when you're under stress. Right, you re- you become yourself. <laughs> yes, that 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 resonates with me. Uh, so I was working with a client yesterday who is in Myers Briggs terms a J, and and so my approach to meal planning just wasn't at all suitable for her. And so what we did was was you know over the over Skype we nutted out a seven day meal plan for her with breakfasts and lunches and dinners for each day, everything planned so that she could generate a shopping list, go to the shops, buy exactly what she needed, know what she was having on any given day. That that doesn't appeal to me at all. When I go to the shops, I rarely take a list. I just, you know, walk through the uh, through the fruit and veg section. Like, that looks good. We haven't had that for a while. I wonder what I could do with that. That's so. You know, that the, the highly structured approach doesn't work so well for people like me. But an unstructured approach that works very well for people like me doesn't work at all for people like my client that I was working with yesterday. Mm, and that, that's that's so good to have that self knowledge. Um, it, yes. make, it makes you, you know, it gives you a whole, a whole another key ring of, of, of keys. Yeah, and it means that, that you get out of this place of comparing yourself to other people and saying, oh, wow, this person's got it all together. Look how organized they are. Maybe you're not the kind of person who really thrives on that degree of organization. And on the other hand, if you're looking at a person who seems to be doing spontaneity really well and saying, oh, my God, I feel so bad about myself. I have to plan everything. Well, you know, maybe you're the kind of person who just does better when you have everything planned out. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a book that I read a couple months ago that I really, really liked. It's by Gretchen Rubin. It's called Better Than Before. And, uh-huh. and you know, she's a, she's a writer. She wrote The Happiness Project. And, and she kind of looked at the science of changing habits. And her conclusion basically is 
there's no one way to do it. And the more you yeah. know about yourself and the more you feel okay with what works for you, the more it'll work for you. Oh, I love that. I'll put that on my reading list because I, I would totally back that approach. The problem with how-to manuals is that they frequently just don't cater to those individual differences in the way that people approach the world. Right. Um, so I want to move on from EFT, but I think we've, we've uh, wet interest, at least you've wet my interest enough to, to want to know, like, if people are really interested in this thing, you know, it doesn't cost money to do it. It takes a couple of minutes. You're basically Correct. just sitting down. If you have, like, hands and a body, you can do it. In or fact, you can even do EFT in your imagination. So if you don't have functioning hands for some reason, like, I don't know, you're, you're in a cast, you broke your arm, you can still do EFT. Okay, so so there goes all the excuses that anyone listening to this exactly right. could have. How, what, what would you recommend for people to find out more and, and get started? Yeah, so there, there are two. There are lots of EFT resources on the web, but they're highly variable in terms of quality. And many of them do have that kind of slick marketing. I don't know. For me, it's a bit of a turnoff. Uh, so I would. I, I usually send people to either uh, Gary Craig's original EFT website, which is emofree.com. E E M for Mary. O and then free. Dot com or eftuniverse.com. I, I particularly like that latter site because uh, it's run by Dawson Church, who I mentioned before, and he keeps track of the EFT research that's been published. So, so for, for nerds like me, I, I, you know, I guess you're a bit of a science nerd too, um, who, who want to know more about, the, about how EFT works or what it's being used on, there's a, a great, um, great resource section there where you can you know, get abstracts of the studies, you know, some of them are full text. Uh -huh. and learn, learn more about it. So they're the two places that, that I would send people to to get really, you know, reliable, solid information without the hype on okay, what okay. EFT can do. Great. And would they have videos? Because I think that's probably the most yes, powerful way to learn. Yes. Yeah, both of, both, of, both of those sites have videos, quite a lot of them actually. Great. Um, so we, as I mentioned, we, we met through Wellness Forum Health, which is you know, not exclusively but largely devoted to teaching people about the, the health benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And yes. you mentioned that you're, you're doing some really interesting research on what do you call it, net netnography? Netnography, yes. It's a portmanteau of internet and ethnography. So it's ethnography, that is the, the study of cultures, adapted to, to studying interactions in the online world. And its origins are really rather interesting. A guy called Robert Kozinets coined the. I'm not actually. I'm not sure if he coined the term. Come to think of it, but he was. He's one of the earliest practitioners, and so he did his PhD uh, research on on um, uh, fan groups of Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> Trekkies who who are you know forming these online communities. And he's also done ethnographies on on fans of the X Files. So that really piqued my curiosity because my my husband and my son are, are Trekkies um, or real big Star Trek fans and um, I'm seriously into the X-Files. So, so anyway, he, he went on to do netnography, uh, um, various other netnographic projects. But one of the 
one of the applications of netnography is studying online support groups. And so my my supervisor has done netnographies of online support groups for uh, people with heart disease, women with breast cancer. And my honours project, um, I'm doing a Bachelor of Health Science honours, my honours project is a, a netnography of a, a Facebook group that I'm actually a member of. And it's essentially a support group for people who wish to follow a, a whole food plant-based diet in Australia. And the the whole food plant-based movement is is not so well established here as it is in the US uh, in, in just in, in in terms of there being you know you have a lot of a lot of doctors you you have a lot of conferences a lot of a lot of events where people can gather and you know kind of share this lifestyle we don't have so much of that going on yet in, in Australia and so, my, so you don't uh, uh, you don't tell people to throw another tofu on the barbie <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 could get you lynched around where I live. <laughs> <laughs> the last person who, who who put tofu on the Barbie is hanging from a tree. No, I'm only kidding. It's not quite that bad, but it is pretty bad. Okay, so sorry you were you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a friend of mine um, set up this this Facebook group some years ago. We're now up to over four thousand members. So it's it's a it's a pretty active online community, and so essentially I'm using that as the the subject material for for my research project. So documenting the the kinds of problems that people face in following a whole food plant based diet, and and also the the sorts of strategies that they use to overcome that, and obviously specifically the role that membership of an online community plays in in helping people overcome those those, those barriers and challenges uh-huh so um do you, did you go in with uh, hypotheses yeah the, the 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 theoretical groundwork um that, that I'm using is is a, a three-step change model that Carl Lewins proposed in the, uh, I think, the, the late 1940s, after the Second World War. It's a really interesting theoretical model. I mean, I, I know you've done a PhD in um, in health promotion or... Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it changed halfway, but there was... Health, <laughs> health is definitely... <laughs> so, so you're you're familiar yeah. with all these like the trans theoretical model and the and the theory of planned behavior and blah 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 the health beliefs model. Well, Lewin's model is just a really simple three step uh, uh, model, which is which is unfreeze the point at which people realize that that the practices that they've been engaging in up to this point in time are no longer viable, that they don't make sense. Okay, so th- this is the moment where someone has watched forks over knives and and sort of gone, oh my god, I've been doing it wrong my entire life <laughs> I need to change um, and then the, the next process is movement so this is where the person goes in and buys the forks over knives cookbook and they you know clean out their fridge and they tell all their friends um, th- th- this this part of the the process is very dicey though because unless that person has uh, some really good tools and resources to help them do what you know the the, the third phase of Lewin's model which is freeze uh, so so um, forming. Uh, forming new habits and, and and having them stick. Unless the person has the tools to do that, they're very likely to just revert back to the old behaviour. 
And you, you, you've seen this happen as I have. People uh, watch the documentaries, read the books, get really excited about it, do it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, whatever, and then they start backsliding because they just don't have those tools and resources to help them freeze again in, in the new position. Sure. So that, that's the model that's kind of guiding my, um, um, my, my study. So you're looking at what happens in the group that either delivers the tools and resources or it kind of distracts or does nothing or just exactly. in, in, increases the gap so that people, I guess you could be part of a community where you feel like, gosh, everyone else has this handled. What's wrong with me? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. That there is a risk of that where where people, you, you know, maybe either facing exceptionally difficult challenges or or the strategies that are working for other people, you know, they've tried those and, and they're not working for them. And then, yeah, again, they feel bad about themselves. What's wrong with me? And And under pressure like that, they're more likely to revert to whatever they did before. Uh huh. And I wonder about that because sometimes, you know, I, I, like I'm, uh, you know, facilitating this group forum um, for the Big Change program, and I'm also involved in some in the various Facebook groups. And like, there's a huge advantage to some having someone like me who knows the answer, right? Who knows who knows both, you know, the science and how to do it, and you can trust me, and I'm not going to tell you to start, you know, rubbing cumin on your earlobes or whatever you know but if you, can do it if you want to i guess yeah well or you could imagine it probably safer but 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 also having you know the, the like being in a group with other people who are struggling mm. like is there value in that or does it just sort of reinforce is it, is it like you know you in 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 elementary school you know, you, you you start learning Spanish, and you're with a group of other, you know, English-speaking kids who don't know Spanish, and mm. like, is you know, do you know what I'm asking? Like, is there a benefit to being part of a group who are stumbling and getting confused, or would you rather just be surrounded by people who are doing it perfectly? I think there's great value in having a mixture of people. And that's what I see in this particular Facebook group. So there there are members of the group uh, who've really got this covered. Uh, I mean, you know, we've been doing it for a while. We, we know how to handle those challenging social situations or what to do when you're stuck on a plane, <laughs> you know, uh, my recent experience, um, all that sort of thing. And so when someone who, who is struggling asks a question, they they get various kinds of response. So someone who's also struggling with that might pipe up, this is in the context of the Facebook group, and say, hey, I hear you. I don't really have any answers to this, but I'm in, I'm in this too. You know, if you want to chat offline, um, private message me, right? So so there's 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 just that that sense of of um, empathy or understanding. And then that person will also usually get half a dozen responses from the more experienced you might say members of the group saying well this is how i handled it and and they so they might get you know half a dozen different strategies for for how people have been successful so they get both they get the sense of of, of empathy and connection as in uh yes this is really hard and they also get the sense that there are people who have in the past experienced it as being hard and now they're past that they're through that stage and they're actually finding it easier so there's there's support and empathy plus hope which i think is a Pretty potent combination. Mm. 
I like that. Um, yeah. So what's, what's your, so far, and as you're in the middle of the research, what's your advice to someone when they think about, should I, should I join one of these online support groups? And like, what sort of questions should I post? What should I post answers to other people? Like, is there, is there sort of a, a protocol to get value yourself and to give other fa others value? Is there a way of thinking about that? So this is really interesting. And I, I was actually um, uh, speaking yesterday to, to my supervisor and a, a, a visiting scholar from um, a university in the Netherlands, uh, Charlotte de Becker, who's, who's written some really interesting papers on uh, her, her focus is more vegetarianism, but, but obviously there's a, a huge degree of crossover. And what she was saying is, is that um, a lot of the people who lurk, so in, in the online world, that means, you know, you're, you're a member of a particular online community, but you don't actively post. And she said that lurkers can actually get just as much benefit from the group as people who are more actively participating. It may just be their personality. They're a bit more introverted. And, and so they will read the group's posts and read other people's responses and get a lot out of it without feeling a particular need to to post themselves. And every now and again, they might just pop up and, and, and ask a question or something like that. So I don't think there's there's a set rule. Certainly, um, what I would suggest is is that with any online group, you um, I, obviously with closed Facebook groups, you have to become a member first. So you can't kind of check it out before you join. You can always leave if it's not for you, and I would recommend leaving if it's not for you. I, I've left some online communities that that had an atmosphere that I didn't feel was particularly conducive to my psychological well-being. Um, so. So, yeah, when you join the group, you know, read, read through previous posts, get it, get a feel for the atmosphere. Is it a friendly place? Is it welcoming? Are, are people non-judgmental? And then just to really check that out, go ahead and ask a question and see what kinds of, of, of responses you get. If they're supportive, if people are really constructive, great, keep doing that and ask lots of lots of questions, whatever occurs to you. If it's a big group like like the, the one that I'm studying, then there's going to be a, a, a range of people with diverse views and and you'll get some interesting answers to your, to your question. Uh, just bear in mind, if your questions of a kind of technical nature you might want to be careful about who's responding to you we're very fortunate that, that there are four admins in this particular group and they they really you know know their stuff when it comes to the science and and so if if other members start posting responses to questions that aren't particularly science-based one of the admins will jump in and just you know very gently point people in the direction of reputable sources of information when it comes to strategies though behavioral strategies you know how to cope with things um i think the more the greater the diversity of answers that that you get the better because then you can read through them and ask yourself well does this fit with me does this fit with my personality style so, something that I always, you know, you, you, you've heard the banter back and forth between Alan Goldhammer and Doug Lyle and, it, you know, their, their styles of approaching things are really different because Alan Goldhammer doesn't care much what other people think of him and so <laughs> he'll just do whatever, whereas Doug Lyle has perfected the approach for, for people who do care what others think of them. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. They're their own little good. I hope good I answered co- your question there. Yeah, yeah. It's very helpful. Um, so one one more quick question before I, I let you go, which is uh, I think re- very relevant to me and possibly to other listeners who are uh, professionals in the plant based movement. So it's about EFT again. So, do, you know, so if I watch some videos, um, am I being irresponsible if I like share EFT with my students and clients? Should I like really wait and go get a training? Or is it something that, you know, like I could do as sort of a, a lay person the same way I would share, you know, something I read in a book or, or a self-help mm. technique? EFT was developed to be a self-help technique. It's history very, very briefly. It's a simplified version of a far more complex technique called TFT or thought field therapy, which was developed by a psychologist called um, um, Roger Callahan. Callahan's uh, approach was incredibly detailed. There were different algorithms, which is tapping sequences, depending on whether it was a phobia or anxiety or this or that or the other. So Gary Gary Craig was a student of Roger Callahan's. Uh, he tried out Callahan's techniques, saw the value of them, but thought, geez, this is complex. And so he simplified it down into a, you know, like a one size fits all tapping routine. And his idea from the get go was, I just want to, you know, release this to the world. Um, he didn't charge for it. He, he's all, you know, the, the, the manual was always free. And, and, and it was developed as a self-help technique. So I, I would say absolutely, you know, direct your, your clients to go and visit uh, these more reputable EFT websites and learn the process. If you want to do it with, with clients, get trained. I mean, yes, it's a self-help technique um, and and a lot of people can resolve many, many problems by themselves without any formal training. When you're dealing, you know, as I frequently am, with, with some fairly, uh, fairly gnarly situations, I mean, I have a lot of clients who are sexually abused as children or they've had other really traumatic experiences. You need training to handle that, mm-hmm. we, we, to, to, to do EFT on that. So, you know, if you just want to introduce them to the idea of EFT for food cravings as a bit of fun, knock yourself out. There, there, there's, there's, there's no harm that can be done. Um, if you're going to delve into their, their deep-rooted psychological problems, <laughs> go, go and get at least, you know, level two EFT training and preferably level three. Gotcha. Well, I would think that if you're going to, you know, going to be delving into you know, sex, childhood, sexual abuse and things like that, you wouldn't want to delve into anything that you wouldn't delve into with your regular bag of tricks. Precisely. Don't rush in where, where angels feed a trade. <laughs> Although, yeah. you know, I guess so some, you know, someone has a nutrition degree or a health coaching, you know, and it's, it's a fairly limited set of, of, of experiences and skills. And very often, you know, I mean, in every single case, I would say that I've worked with a person with some sort of disordered eating, there's been something that, some sort of minefield beneath it. Oh, yes. Oh, people don't don't develop disordered eating patterns just out of the blue. Yes, there's, there's some kind of, of, of background to it, which in my opinion does need to be addressed. It's not enough just to give them information or to to focus on on the um, on the, the the sort of immediate the proximal drivers of the of, of the disordered eating. I, my experience is you, you get results when you go back into that that um, that that bedrock of the dis, of, of the eating disordered behavior, the, the usually childhood or, or, or teenage origins of it. Right, because that's what what people really want is to be free, right? Mm. Which is the the, yes. the middle letter of uh, EFT. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Yep. Not not free of emotions because that would be weird. <laughs> Humans without emotions, mm, not so good. But certainly free of that that sense that that the elephant is is controlling you rather than you the rider being able to direct the elephant. That that's definitely what what people want freedom from. Gotcha. So you mentioned Skype earlier. So do you work with people all over the world? Yeah, I have clients uh, all over Australia, all over the world. Um, that's the that's the beauty of Skype. It's it's just marvelous. You have that sense of being in the same room as the person, uh, but they can be in a different time zone as we are. It's uh, what is it now? It's uh, about seven fifteen a.m. where I am, and, and yet here we are, you know, connecting via Skype. So, yes, I, I work um, uh, via Skype with, with people anywhere. Great. So it's time to, to let people know how they can find you and learn from you and stay in touch and work with you if they so choose. Yeah, the best place is just to go to my website, which is www.empowertotalhealth.com.au. Don't forget the, the .au, I am in Australia. So that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R and then totalhealth.com.au. I have a free weekly newsletter. So every week there are two uh, nutritional or health-related articles and a recipe. I'm const- I, 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 do, I do love to cook, so I'm constantly coming up with new recipes. And I also, I have some online courses and programs, all of which you can find details of on, on, on my website. Great. And so you, you, I, you work with people one-on-one as a, uh, as a yeah, health one-on-one counselor? one-on-one and also, also in, in small group settings as well. Okay, great. So that's Empower totalhealth.com.au that's correct and i'm on facebook if you just go to to facebook um um, empower total health is my is my um my facebook page i'm on twitter i don't tweet a whole lot but but i have a twitter account it's at empowered robin it's empowered yep empowered robin okay Great. So I'll put all these in the show notes and for folks who are listening, if you hang on a few more moments, you'll find out what episode this is so you can go find it online. Terrific. Uh, so Robin, this has been so interesting because it feels like you've, you, you're, you're firmly ensconced in the plant-based movement, but we're having a totally different conversation than I usually have with practitioners. We're not talking about macronutrients and folate and you know how you cured yeah. yourself of, of acne and you know whatever, but rather I, I did actually I did yeah, but we're not talking. About, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's just me being an INFP, I guess. There you go. You intuited that. Yes, yeah, so I had terrible acne as a teenager because I, I went vegetarian for ethical reasons at the age of, of fifteen, but I didn't realize that um, that uh, dairy and eggs are a bad idea. So I ate a lot more dairy and had awful acne. So there you go. Okay. Well, this is now it's you know, now become another typical plant for yourself podcast. That's exactly. Oh so, my god, I've gone out the typical route. So no, so no. forget I said anything. No. <laughs> well, well, for 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 me, like yeah, you know, I'm a big old science nerd. And one of the great things about being, you know, back at university is I now have access to all that free full text. It's just amazing. Ah. Um, but, but for me, for me, yeah, the, the science is in the bag. I'm, I'm not saying we don't need more science on, on the benefits of, 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 of healthy plant-based nutrition. We, we, we need that. But what I'm really interested in is how can we get people to do it? 
All right. Yeah. We, you, you and I know, and most of your listeners know, we should be doing it. And yet many people are either not doing it or they're doing it from time to time or they'd like to do it, but they haven't jumped in yet. How can, how can we make it easier for people to do it? That's what I'm really interested in. Right. And that's, that's where I'm, I'm constantly looking for. Who's the, who's the next T. Colin Campbell of behavioral science around yes. changing our lifestyles? So that's why, you know, yeah. I'll read, you know, I read uh, maybe a dozen books a month looking everywhere for, you know, for the, for those new secrets as they, as they emerge. Mm. And, and what you have shared today, I think for many people is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle. So I really want to thank you for your, for I your really work. I really hope so. Yes. I hope that'll be valuable. Yeah. And thanks so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, Robin. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to all the EFT resources we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 186. And please, if you want to get healthy and fit, even if you've tried before and failed, hell, especially if you've tried before and failed, check out bigchangeprogram.com. It opens up tomorrow, December 1st, 2016, and space is limited. We give everyone individual attention, and my partner Josh Lajani is now famous, having been featured on the December cover of Runner's World magazine, so we're expecting a ton of interest and sign-ups, so don't delay. Listen, I've been told by some savvy marketers that December is the worst month to sell self-improvement. Everyone just wants to binge and overindulge for one more month. After all, it's the holidays coming up and it's dark and people are kind of low and depressed and they don't want to deal with stuff like that. And then in January, they try heroically to extricate themselves through a series of New Year's resolutions. And so I'm going to ask you to think about how well that works. And if you have these goals for 2017, if you're like, this is the year I finally lose that weight. I finally get healthy. I finally find my inner athlete, my inner runner, my inner swimmer. If I finally get back to how I was in high school, if I finally drop my self-limiting beliefs and find a community that supports me, maybe you live somewhere where you're the only person who even tries to eat plant-based and you find yourself in the company of others and you're constantly like having these little mini cheese binges or whatever and you just you get home and you're like, ah, I read the book, I read the China study, I read the starch solution, I read Proteinaholic, and I'm still out there doing this stuff I know I shouldn't do. Well, you need support. You know, you developed all these habits in community. And so it's going to take community to break them. So the Big Change Program, you can find it at bigchangeprogram.com. Uh, we've already we've already in the middle of one of the runs, and so this is our second bobsled run. We've learned a lot from the first one, so we've made some changes. Uh, which will benefit you. Uh, first of all, there's now three tiers of participation. So if you just want to be part of an online um, experience where everything is kind of scaled, you can do that. You can also join with the forum and have access to a small group of people with whom you are going to be in contact. You're going to be supporting each other. You're going to be accountable to each other. And you're going to get real-time coaching and feedback via the forum. You're going to do your homework assignments, post them, and Josh and I are going to respond to them. So there's a lot of sort of time and care and energy that goes from us directly into, into you and your one-on-one situation. And third, 
um, I'm going to be offering for a very limited number of people a full year of unlimited laser coaching where if you really want hand-holding and help and guidance, um, you have me unlimited coaching for a full year. And if you know anything about how much coaching costs, you will be very pleasantly surprised at the cost in which I'm able to offer this because of the model that I've developed slash borrowed. It's extremely effective and it works in 15-minute laser sessions. So we're not spending an hour on the phone every week, but you're going to do your homework, uh, schedule your next call. We're going to do it. We're going to be very focused, no chit-chat, no how's the weather, but just focused relentlessly, laser-focused on you achieving your big change goals. So again, you can go there and read all about the Big Change Program at bigchangeprogram.com. If you see the sign-up button at the bottom, it means it's open. If not, come back tomorrow, December 1st, and you can sign up and be assured of a spot. All right, if you're new to the Plant Yourself podcast, you can catch up on 185 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you don't get my semi-weekly, sometimes weekly email newsletter, you can get that at plantyourself.com as well. Thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Veltkanovsky, Deep Breath, David Bizek, the mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, and new this week, Kelly Cameron. Welcome, Kelly, and thank you, and thank you all for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. You can also become a patron like Kelly Cameron did this week by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast. And you can do that over at the right sidebar at plantyourself.com. In garden news, the stars this week are bok choy and mustard greens and... We were digging in the garden. It's not exactly garden-ish, but we were, we were in there putting in a, sol- a bank of solar panels for our new um, hybrid hot water heater from Sun Bandit. So now when the sun shines, we get free hot water thanks to the sun. I know it's not free. We have to amortize the cost of everything over however long it lasts. But anyway, when I'm uh, you know taking a hot shower in the middle of the day and I take an extra two minutes, that's how I'm thinking about it. Also, not exactly garden, but uh, my neighbor, Jim, has uh, graciously allowed me to use his writing shed. It's actually like a garden shed, but I'm turning it into a writing shed with his help and my wife Mia's help. We're uh, insulating and putting down nice flooring and getting some furniture, and I will have a writing retreat. And depending on the internet that I get there, uh, it may become a podcasting retreat as well. So if I suddenly feel more earthy and woodsy and grounded and uh, focused, it's because I have this beautiful new shed in the woods. So it should be done sometime in December. In running news, I think I have come to reality and realized that I am not going to do a 3.30 marathon in March. I'm now aiming for 3.45, which is still over half an hour better than the marathon time that I got in my 50K. But 
it was just getting too hard. I was starting to get achy, and I realized, like, I'm 51 years old. I may have another, you know, 69 years on this planet. So what's the rush? So let's take this slow and intelligently. And on race day, if I decide I want to go for it, I will. But uh, I've toned down my training a little bit to, uh, to help me be balanced in the other areas of my life. Well, that's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.